Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Duncan McCargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a Professor of Political Science here at the University of Copenhagen. It's my great pleasure today to be joined by William Callahan, who's the author of Sensible Politics, Visualizing International Relations, published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. And this book was shortlisted recently for the Visa Susan Strange Award for the best book of the year. Bill. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for inviting me, Duncan. I'm really glad to be here. We're very, very happy to have you. Bill Callahan is Professor of International Relations at the London School of Economics and a prominent scholar of China who's best known for his influential books and articles about China's engagements in global politics. His previous publications include two other Oxford University Press books, most recently China Dreams, 20 Visions of the Future, which was published in 2013. And Bill's a keynote speaker at the 2021 Nordic Nears Council Conference held jointly with the Nordic Association of China Studies and the University of Helsinki. So, Bill, this book's a bit of a departure from some of your earlier work. Why did you set out to write a book about sensible politics? I wrote a book about sensible politics because, I guess, two things. I was really excited that visual international relations is a new and growing field. And when I think about it, I've been talking about films and photographs and even gardens throughout my career since the 1990s. But what happened about 10 years ago is I took two short courses, two two-week intensive courses that really changed the way I think about politics and, and Asian studies. One was in Japanese garden design, where I went to Kyoto, and for two weeks, we actually went into the Imperial Japanese Garden in Kyoto, mm-hmm. and we're trimming it with professional gardeners. And then... With, with nail the, clippers, I suppose. <laughs> No, climbing up trees and hacking down branches. Mm. It was fascinating how you think it's all about bonsai, but no, you're thinking in a very broad canvas of a whole park. So what I was thinking is, okay, I had studied aesthetics and I had studied culture, but here I was actually creating or kind of trimming culture. And for that class, we actually had a final exam. We went up into the mountains above Mm. Kyoto and we were given an assignment to design and build a garden in an afternoon. And everybody did it. Mine didn't actually turn out that well. But for me, it was fascinating because it made me not just think about things visually, but I started to realize that you have to feel visually, you have to feel Mm. multisensory. And we don't really do that in academia. We usually kind of analyze things through text. And what kind of got me into this is this Japanese garden design experience is about doing analysis by making a garden. There's a couple of reasons why I wrote the book. One is because visual international relations is a very new field. There's dozens of articles, but until last year, when I published my book, one or two other people published it. Nobody had done it. And I realized kind of why nobody had published a book is because it's really hard. It's not very straightforward. There's an enormous amount of theory and stuff. The other reason I wanted to write the book is because because almost all of my colleagues take what I would describe as a very Eurocentric approach. They use very Western theory, even if it's critical theory, it's Mm -hmm. really about European or North American experience. And they use it to analyze Western example. One of the things I say in my book is, oh my gosh, I don't want to talk about 9-11 because mm-hmm. I found that almost every book and article that was written in the 15 years after 9-11 started off with a picture of 
the Twin Towers coming right. down. I thought this, of course, is very important, but my gosh, there's so many other things going on, and that's what I want to do. So what I try to do in the book is use my experience and background in Asian studies and Chinese studies and little Thai studies to say Asia has something to say about this, not just as a case study, but as a source of theory, as a source mm -hmm. of concept. So that's what I try to do in the book is do what some of us call comparative political theory, where you use non-Western concepts, not just mm -hmm. to talk about China. So in one of my chapters on gardens, I, you know, I look at Chinese and Japanese gardens. I use those concepts and experiences to go back and talk about September 11th National Memorial in New York. So rather than starting off with 9-11, uh, right. 9-11 is like the end point. And hmm. it's an interesting case study. It's not the focus of global politics. So that's what I try to do in the book is speak to a few different audience. One is Asian studies. Another is political and social theory, but also the, the new field of visual international relations. Right. That's what I wanted to come on to ask you about. And this isn't really my wheelhouse exactly, but I'm well aware there's been this visual turn. People also talk about an aesthetic turn or an effective turn in international relations recently. And my former Leeds <laughs> colleague, Cindy Weber, and my current current very distinguished Copenhagen colleague, Lena Hansen, a part of this movement. So how does your argument differ from what those kinds of scholars have been talking about for a few years now? My argument differs from most of the analysis being done in visual international relations in two ways. One, most people who are doing visual IR see it as sort of a security practice, a securitizing. And what they do is they look at images to divide between insiders and outsiders, between self and other. And I found that that act is really interesting. And I do that in my book. That's what I call the interpretive view of things to look at visibility, what is visible, what is invisible, what's inside the frame, what's outside the frame. But I thought that can only go so far. And it doesn't really leverage what visuals and multisensory experience can do that is different from text. Because what that interpretive method is basically doing is turning everything into a text and using literary theory and textual analysis to analyze it, to deconstruct mm -hmm. it, to speak truth to power. And I thought what it was missing there is a lot of the um, affect work, a lot of the emotional, a lot of the uh, non-textual, non-narrative aspects of things. That's what I do in my book and also in my films is to not just explain things, but kind of try to provoke people to feel something, to bring people together or to kind of attraction and repulsion is a, is a big deal in effective politics. And rather than just talking about effective politics, I want to do it. That's why right. uh, making films is one of the things that I do. Right. I was in a, a very interesting workshop organized by the International Relations Group in our Department of Political Science in Copenhagen last week, where people were talking a lot about different schools and different turns in IR. I mean, are you yourself trying to promote a new turn with this focus on social construction of the visual or visual construction of the social? What I'm trying to do is get away from these grand generational debate. Because another trend in international relations is the Asian turn that, you know, Chinese concepts like Tianxia all under heaven will solve all their problems yes. in the Westphalian system. I'm very suspicious of these grand narratives of international relations. So what I do is specifically say I'm not doing a grand narrative. What I'm interested in, what kind of a, a media theory or medium-sized theory, not small theory, not grand theory. And rather than saying there's going to be a new ism. There's not going to be like a Callahan-ism. What I'm interested in is picking out specific concepts and examples and experiences and using them to analyze specific things. So 
one of the things I do in the, the book is take this Chinese character Tu, which means image. I mean, it's a very common character. Right. So the word for library is Tu Shu Guan. But the character, the idea of Tu is really complex because if you kind of go back and trace it, it just sort of describes things as an image or a, a map or a chart when it's acting as a noun. And when it acts as a verb, it actually does things. It's not just about describing things. It's about desiring things and wanting things and fighting for things. So even within a very simple character that we now generally translate as map or chart, it has all of this kind of effective, emotional, active meaning to it. So that's what I do is kind of use these concepts to talk about global politics. And so to me, what I'm trying to do is have a collection of, of concepts, not that everybody will use all these concepts, but sort of break it open so other people can go to other countries, cultures, and regions yes. and tell us about their concepts. So like people have done this before in India, maybe 20, 25 years ago, mm -hmm. somebody wrote an article about the bazaar as a concept. Right. So that's the sort of thing that I'm doing. That's why I feel happy to be part of a comparative political theory group where it's not just about discarding Western ideas, because I still mm -hmm. use a lot of post-structural ideas. It's yes. about decentering them and trying to include lots of other things in our uh, assemblage of concepts. In the book, you're quite critical of what you refer to as the Eurocentrism of, in, that appears in a lot of the study of international relations. Can you explain what you mean by that and what kind of corrective you have to offer to that Eurocentric tendency? Well, Eurocentrism in international relation is, I mean, it's familiar. It's its in most, if not all, academic subjects now. And Eurocentrism is where we use kind of Western theory or theory that is based on Western experiences and treat every other part of the world as a case study. And that's what I did. In my book, China, the Pest Optimist Nation, I use post-structuralism to read China. And what I'm trying to do now is to decenter theory. I mean, one of the ways that people deal with Eurocentrism in international relations is to just criticize Western things. So one of the people that I analyze in my book says, oh my gosh, I'm looking at border walls. I realize I'm only looking at the U.S.-Mexico barrier, and there's lots of other barriers out there, but gosh, I don't know anything about them. But it's okay because I'm being critical of Western mm -hmm. hegemony. And my point is it's not enough to be critical of Western hegemony. We need to, especially people who are trained in Asian studies, we need to go mm -hmm. out there and analyze, in my case, China and what the heck right. China is doing. So it's not about replacing the West, Western centrism with Sinocentrism. Mm -hmm. It's about right. kind of shaking it up, seeing where Chinese concepts and Thai concepts are helpful in talking about issues. One of the other chapters I have is about the politics of the veil. You know, I use concepts from China and Thailand and other places just to think about how veils work as global politics. Could you give us an example of the sensible politics or visual politics? Maybe one and very interesting one is this well-known new map that now appears in Chinese passports with the nine dash line. <laughs> So the nine dash line, if you know Southeast Asian politics, you're very familiar. This is the line that's called the dragon's tongue that digs deep down into maritime Southeast Asia. It's very controversial. Beijing claims that it delineates China's South China Sea sovereign claims since ancient times. And what I do is not just sort of dig down and find out where this nine dash line comes from. Other people have done that. What I do is look at what does the nine dash line do, especially when it's not in a legal text given to the United Nations. It's not in an academic article. 
No, it's right. on a passport. It's been on a passport right. since 2012. And what I do is I kind of do the interpretive theory of say, okay, where did this come from? And what is it doing here? And so, so I give the explanation I just gave. It's part of China's claim to right. uh, South China Sea and say that, you know, it's actually been illegal to not have the nine dash line on a Chinese map produced in China since 1992. Since 1992, all maps have to have the nine dash right. line. What right. is interesting is that since China is a center for of global production for maps and globes that are just sent out to people mm -hmm. and ghouls around the world, a lot of maps of the world that are in a classroom in New Zealand have the nine dash line on them. Okay, <laughs> so it's just all over the place. And so what I found is that the nine dash line is not just doing sort of legal and political things. It's also doing emotional thing. And that's where I say we need to think about how images actually create society uh, in the sense that uh, this image is, is provocative on the passport. So for, if you're a patriotic Chinese, you love the image and you're really happy to have it and, and you take it abroad and you show it around. What was interesting is that when this passport came out, some journalists went and interviewed border guards in Vietnam. The Vietnamese border guards were outraged. They were really upset because every time they stamped the passport of a Chinese person coming into Vietnam, mm -hmm. they were sort of validating this claim, which they and their country in Vietnam disputes, you know, goes, yes. to, goes to battle over. So that's what I'm interested in is how these images kind of provoke what I call effective communities mm -hmm. of sense. How, how these communities are not rational communities or not, it's not describing things. It's kind of provoking people by attracting them if you're a good Chinese patriot and repelling them if you're a Vietnamese patriot. And that we need to appreciate how images and multisensory experiences do emotional things, that emotional things are important to explain, you know, populism, but just to explain kind of everyday global politics. So like other IR scholars I know, including Cindy Weber, you've turned in recent years to making your own films. Can you talk a bit about some of those films, like your Great War film and how that film illustrates your ideas about sensible politics? By chance, I've come across this new method of like I write an essay and then I make a mm -hmm. film about it and then I write yep. another essay and that the right. film and the essay speak to each other. It's not like one illustrates the other. Yes. And this is particularly true of a uh, film I made called Great Walls from yes. ideology to experience. And in that film, what I do is I try to kind of show the arguments I was just making about how, mm -hmm. sure, walls mean things. Walls are a barrier. They they show ideologies. Um, they The U.S.-Mexico barrier is a racist barrier, mm -hmm. um, has that kind of ideology. So what I do in that film is I use the Great Wall of China to sort of question the way we think about the U.S.-Mexico barrier. Not to say mm -hmm. that that it's good or bad, but just to show that something else is going on there. And two of the things that really come out in the film are, are that walls are not just, um, conceptually, they're not just barriers, they're gateways. The key factor for the Great Wall of China is not the wall itself, but it, it's the gateways in the wall, because that the gateways sort of regulate and govern flows of people mm -hmm. and goods and ideas coming in and out. So sometimes yes. it's closed, but sometimes mm -hmm. it's open. So to me, that is much more interesting and important, not just, oh, there's a barrier there. Right. Uh, but it's like, well, who and when is deciding 
when it's open and closed. And you can see this in the film much more clearly. The other thing that it can really only see in a film is how the Great Wall of China and a lot of these other walls are just these fantastic experiences of horror and wonder that the wall is the sublime. It's not mm-hmm. good or bad. It's just an overwhelming sense of what walls do. They kind of take us beyond ourselves, sometimes in a good way, often in a bad way. And what I was able to do was to source some film clips of a Chinese artist, Sai Guoqiang, mm-hmm. who in the early 1990s, convinced the local government at the western end of the Great Wall, which is in the Mm -hmm. Gobi Mez Desert, he convinced them to let him lay down 10 kilometers of fireworks, because he's a pyrotechnic Mm. artist. And what he did is he lit up the long, 10 kilometer long chain of fireworks at sunset Mm -hmm. and extended the Great Wall by 10 kilometers. It's an amazing thing to watch. So you watch it and you hear the kind of local Chinese people's reactions. And to Mm -hmm. me, that was quite interesting because rather than criticizing the wall, which is what most artists do for the U.S.-Mexico barrier or Mm -hmm. the West Bank barrier. Here, he's kind of playing with it, not bringing down the wall, but extending it by 10 kilometers, but through fireworks, by blowing it up. So to me, it's a fascinating sense of the creative destruction of the sublime that you can see in these kind of wall experiences. I think that that's an important way to understand how walls work. And what I was trying to do in that chapter, and especially in the film, is get away from a rather simplistic moralizing view that, oh, walls are bad. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if you like walls, walls are good. Walls do lots of different things. Let's see how they work. You know, I also use Cindy Weber's film. She's done a couple of yes. films about the uh, U.S.-Mexico barrier. And what is interesting to me is that she interprets walls as often wholly negative experiences. And it is. It's a horrible thing, separating families. But if you watch her films, you can see the sort of excitement. And, that you know, there's a fiesta at the wall in one of her right. films of people drinking beer and playing yep. volleyball over the wall between Arizona and Mexico. So that's what I find fascinating is that people make films and even more than a text, the meaning of it just kind of escapes the author. So it kind of escaped uh, Cindy's own interpretation of uh, what was going on. Right. I mean, do you think the fact that a number of IR scholars and some other scholars are moving into these alternative modes of production says something about frustration with the limitations of academic work itself as a way of conveying complex or nuanced ideas that really give us a feel for what's actually going on in the world of international politics? A lot of us are making films, some people are doing through knitting and crochet, making art as a method to do politics, not just to Mm -hmm. represent kind of the conclusions. And that's exactly why I'm interested in this. It's exciting and it's new, new to me anyway. It's a way of, of engaging with audiences in a different way. So for example, one of my films uses actually great wall images and it's about, called Mearsheimer versus Nye, uh, Mm -hmm. The Rise of China. Yes. Uh, so this is John Mearsheimer and Joseph Nye are very famous international relations theorists. Right. And I was happy and lucky enough to interview them about China and their experiences going to China. And so they talk about their experiences. They also talk about their theories of engagement and containment for China. And I was able to make a film. It wasn't just a talking heads thing. It was illustrated with all sorts of other audiovisual factors. And What has happened is that is my most viewed film, and it's been viewed 70,000 times, whereas my Google Scholar tells me that my most popular article has been been viewed maybe 800 times. So it's a factor of 100 times. And so that's what's exciting about films, too, is that you can go to a different audience 
without having to sacrifice the sort of nuance. It's not dumbing things down necessarily. It's just doing things in a different way where you don't have to explain them. You can show them through um, audiovisual media. Right. And that may be one reason I've been doing a lot of podcasts lately. You mentioned the course on Japanese gardens that you took. Could you explain a bit about how that's influenced your work? If we actually literally read the story that you describe, it sounds as though the, the one moral of the story is you got a bit carried away and you became rather <laughs> ambitious, which could itself possibly uh, inspire some reflections. But in what sense does this work in Japanese gardens really inform uh, critical understandings of international relations? The short answer is that Japanese gardens and Chinese gardens, when you look at them, or especially when you're building them, you're building a little world. And that the first thing you learn mm. in garden design school is that you have to build a wall and that you have to start digging and piling mm. rocks for a mount. But at the end, it's supposed to look all natural. So to me, it was fascinating because it's a very deliberate social construction of nature. And it's a very deliberate social construction of a social order and a world order. And when I took that two-week intensive Japanese garden design course, I had already thought about this. I had already written something about Japanese gardens um, and how they often serve as war memorials. But what was important about that garden design course is that I very quickly shifted from understanding gardens to sort of feeling them and sort of a visceral scent. Gardens to me are the most multi-sensory experience you can have because you see it, you hear it. If there's birds yes. or wind, you smell it. If it's a vegetable garden, you taste it. Of course, you touch mm -hmm. it. So it's all five senses, usually all going at the same time. So that was what was fascinating to me. It's about how do you create order out of nothing? And then how do you relate that order to other things? So that's why I think gardens are important, especially in Asian studies. But in my chapter on gardens, I start out talking about Versailles. Versailles as mm -hmm. a, a world order garden. The Versailles yes. as the French emperor, empire writ small. Yes. And that the same thing has been going on in China and Japan for hundreds of years as well. That the imperial gardens are about an ideal world order. This is utopia. It's, it's a built yes. utopia um, that has lots of references to history and culture and poetry and things. So to me, it's a great example of sort of cultural politics and the politics of culture. It's all, I mean, I also like talking about the international politics of gardens because it's just a strange thing to do. Yes. Uh, most people say, you know, what the heck, you know, why aren't you talking about war? So, oh, well, I talk about right. war. This, this garden right. was in a war. <laughs> right. This garden yep. was built with war booty. <laughs> right. Uh, so that's what I try to do is kind of use strange examples and um, sort of uneasy juxtapositions um, to try and do right. some analysis. Right. That's obviously a, been a feature of your work for a long time, trying to provoke people to think in new ways by coming up with unlikely constructions and analogies and, and parallels. I mean, a lot of the book seems to be somewhat directed at the, the larger world of IR and scholars who are you know, being encouraged to, to come out of their Eurocentrism or to see the world a bit differently. What do you think scholars of China and of Asia, like many of the listeners to the Nordic Asia podcast, ought to take away from your book? Asian studies scholars, I think, can take away the methods that I use. 
for mm-hmm. analyzing visual images and multisensory experiences. I hope I'm encouraging other people to sort of look at these Chinese or Japanese or Thai concepts that we just see around, but don't actually employ in kind of analyzing. So I'm, I guess I'm hoping to encourage people to take concepts like tu or concepts of gardens and the what they can say about their own research. Because there's just a treasure trove of wonderful concepts out there. Like one of the other concepts that I use is familiar to people who do China and Japan is in Chinese is Wenwu. It's kind of the civilization militarism dynamic. Mm-hmm, right which is everywhere. But only uh, three or four people have actually explored it and used it to analyze Mm -hmm. Chinese literature and and history. And I think there's just so much more that we can do with these, I call them dynamic dyads, but just these concepts from China and from greater East Asia. Right. So this book lays out a whole, perhaps a new way of viewing international politics, of viewing China and beyond. Where do you go from here, Bill? What's the next project that you're working on? What I often do is I write a big book that looks at lots of theory and examples from many countries, and then I go back and write a book about China. So right Mm -hmm. now, for the past year, I've been going back and looking at the sort of dynamic between the way your worldview Mm -hmm. and the way you view the world. So this sort of parallel in English is the same in Chinese and a lot of other languages that there's a dynamic between your ideological worldview, your conceptual view of the world, and the way you actually view the world. So what Mm -hmm. I've been doing is I was in Taiwan for nine months um, using their resources to just look at Chinese images of the stranger, the foreigner, the other, and what they can tell us about mm-hmm. Chinese worldview. So it's a very broad, a very broad uh, topic. And for example, the paper I'm going to present at the conference in a couple of days is looking at the international politics of noses and how Chinese artists and officials and you know propaganda poster drawers, illustrators um, have been categorizing people according to their nose size. And so I, what I try to do is the sort of thing we were just talking about is kind of mixing strange mm-hmm. examples. So I start off right. in Tang Dynasty, China, and I'm looking at the, these high noses of Central Asian warriors and how they function in the Tang Dynasty, which is seen as a very cosmopolitan dynasty. And then I relate that to how the PRC has drawn noses in the 20th century. I look to propaganda posters from the uh, Korean War, where Russians had really nice, beautiful, high noses, and Americans had very ugly, big, hooked noses. So my point is not that, oh, China kind of categorizes people as insiders or outsiders, depending on their nose. It's like, no, this is sort of an ideological thing to draw people with a certain kind of nose, not just exclude people, but to include them. So that the Tang Dynasty, Guren, who had the high noses, they were included as warriors Mm -hmm. who would protect the emperor. It was seen as a good thing for them. The Russians are included, again, as warriors to protect the PRC, the Americans are excluded through the way their noses are drawn as kind of big, ugly noses that are full of disease. And so that's what I try to do. Take something every day, like your nose, and mm-hmm. trace how it has been created and used in different ways in different time periods, drawing parallels and distinction. But the main point is like, oh my gosh, uh, Chinese elites have been fascinated by big noses for a long time. And it's not just sort of a, a 20th century thing, like when I no. went to China as a student in 1985, 
it was common for people on the street to chuckle, you know, point at me and chuckle and call me a big nose foreigner. It's like, wow, they've been talking about big nose foreigners since the Tang Dynasty. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> fascinating and much to look forward to. Thanks, Bill, for joining me today on the Nordic Asia podcast to talk about your new book, Sensible Politics. Thank you, Duncan. It's been lots of fun. I'm Duncan McCargo, Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen. I've been talking to William Callahan, who's one of our keynote speakers for the imminently forthcoming NNC 2021 Helsinki conference. And he is the author of a very important and fascinating recent book from Oxford University Press, Sensible Politics, Visualizing International Relations 2020, which makes the case for a new understanding of global politics by countering Eurocentrism and placing much more emphasis on a broader understanding of the visual sphere. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.